Welcome to the Tech Hustler podcast. This podcast is for you if you want to hear the unfiltered stories from inspiring tech entrepreneurs. I started this podcast and the community to create what I was missing in the tech industry today. My mission is to make space for women in tech by creating a platform where they can connect, get inspired and gain new knowledge that will help them to accomplish whatever they are dreaming of. It doesn't matter if you're a tech founder, an employee, or dreaming of launching a startup. This podcast is for you. My name is Ivana von Proschwitz, and I'll be your host. It's time to start hustling smarter, not harder. Today's guest is Julia Delin. She is the CEO of SSC Ventures, the venture capital fund of the Stockholm School of Economics, investing in startups admitted to the startup incubator of the business school. She has a background as the CEO of SSC Business Lab, where she has coached over 150 startups on fundraising, growth marketing and sales during her five years in the position. Prior to that, she co-founded the event ticketing platform Simply Events and worked with growth at multiple startups. Julia is an active angel investor in startups like Imagilabs and Relox Robotics and sits on the board of horse tech startup Ridley. In her spare time, she writes about startups, diversity and works for an equal tech scene. Warm welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thank you so much, Ivana. Yay! I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. And I think we have uh, very interesting topics to talk about yes. today. So we are going to talk about the venture capital landscape and, and what is a venture capital case. Yes. But let's start from the beginning. So you are the CEO of Stockholm School of Economics Ventures. Yes. Can you tell me about that? So uh, SSE Ventures is the venture capital fund of the Stockholm School of Economics and um, I've been uh, running that since uh, the past year, but we've been working on it as a project since the past maybe four years. Um, and it started as an idea when I was the CEO of the incubator of the school. And we basically saw a need for with the startups that they wanted to have early access to um, capital that wasn't it wasn't uh, like the large sums that they were raising in in later rounds, but very early. Uh, capital that they needed to just get that traction before raising a pre-seed round. And uh, we saw a lot of interest from investors investing in that kind of risky startups. But in a way, we also diversify their uh, risk investments by making it into a fund. So um, we we made this uh, as a project for like uh, many years before we ended up here. But now it's launched and uh, we've made our first investment. That's really cool. Yeah. And a lot of uh, big founders have come out of Stockholm School of Economics. Uh, yes. Yeah. So founders of the big companies like Klarna and uh, many, many others. Yeah. So it looks like a proven uh, track record there. Yes. And it's funny, actually, because uh, when I started working with this, it was in 2019. And we uh, looked at uh, the tw- 200 companies that we had admitted to the business lab up until that point during the I mean, I think we had been around for like 18, 19 years uh, at that point. 
and uh, we modeled up the fund. So if we would have invested in every single company of, of these, how would that go? And you could see that Klarna, Bud- Budby and Voy, they all returned the fund individually. Um, that's cool. Yeah. So that's why we decided to launch it, because we really had the data behind it. Yeah. Yeah, really. Mm. So what do you invest in today? So it's a super, super niche mandate. We invest in the companies that come into the incubate program at the SSE Business Lab, so at the incubator. And we give them a convertible of 300,000 uh, crowns, Swedish crowns. And uh, if they are in the middle of a round, we uh, invest directly in that round as well. So we've done two direct investments and five convertibles. Okay. And do you have any industries that you are especially interested in or is it everything that comes into the lab? So uh, I actually don't have a say in what we invest in if it comes into the lab. So um, everything that comes in, we invest in and the lab doesn't have any focus. It's industry agnostic, but um, it's connected to a business school. So you can imagine that it's it's not that much deep tech or life science, but it's more um, like SaaS, uh, B2C apps. It's more... Um, operationally heavy stuff like Budby and Voy are great examples of that Um, and fintech of course yeah cool and uh, do I mean an obvious question and I think I know the answer but I still have to ask you this do you have to be an alumni from Stockholm School of Economics to come get into the lab or can anyone apply yeah, so uh, since we are connected to the Stockholm School of Economics, we require that at least one person in the founding team has uh, either graduated from SSE or is a stu- currently a student. But they can also be faculty or staff members. So we actually have applications uh, previously that have come in from previous um, employees at the Stockholm School of Economics. So it's it's a very wide mandate in that sense. And that's also because of uh, the fact that all universities uh, in uh, Sweden have their own incubator. So you can basically get the support that uh, to start a company if you are studying at a university in Sweden from, from that university or um, that uh, innovation office that it's called. Yeah, and that's a really good hack yes. to look for because may- that's maybe not the obvious choice. No. But- Think about what school like or what university you're studying at or studied before at and see if they have an innovation lab. And then you can uh, kind of take, um, yeah, use that opportunity to get business advice and get funding as well. Yeah. To not uh, mention also like the regions have their own incubators sometimes or funding uh, funding incubators. And uh, of course, Alme has offices around uh, the country. So you can really get a lot of good advice um, most often for free in Sweden, which is a great asset if you're starting a company. Yeah, really take the opportunity to use that. Yeah. It's available. But you also were a part of starting the SSSE Ventures. Can you tell me about that journey? Yes. So when I came into the incubator, we had uh, just received a huge donation from the Erling Passion Family Foundation. Uh, and they've been um, supporting in creating this huge innovation focus area at SSE, which we didn't really have our own department for before, but they helped set it up. And a part of that donation was given to the incubator to support its um, operations. And so when I came in, uh, we had just received this grant and we uh, I came from the private industry and I I thought like, 
why should we be financed by donations? Like we could probably fund ourselves, right? Uh, and I started working with this partnership program that we today run um, quite successfully. And I also started working with the idea of a fund. And um, now we've sort of laid the foundation of what we think will actually eventually fund the incubator and hopefully also the school to some extent, because the school is funded to, I think, only 18, 19% of government funds and the rest is private capital. So it's also quite unique in that sense that we need more private capital to go into the school. And so this fund is a way to do that. And um, and it's been it's been a journey because uh, the Stockholm School of Economics, it's, uh, I think we're turning 114 years old this year. And uh, it's, a, it's a really old institution. And if you're building something new and innovative in that institution, it's uh, it has to it has to match with everything that you have in terms of tradi- traditions and history and legacy and and um, the brand and it, you can't just come up with things and just do it. You really have to make sure that it fits into the strategy of the whole institution. And so we had we worked a lot with um, like everything from how this works from a tax perspective because it's obviously. Um, it's not a private school in that sense, um, to how we will work with investors, how we will work with our startups, how we will de-risk a lot of the the risks that come with actually starting a fund because it's it's not super simple and and uh, no other university has really done what we did uh, in Sweden because most universities, if they have a fund to support startups, it's actually with government funds and ours is completely uh, private capital. Okay. So uh, a lot of work and a lot of um, matching with how the structure works. And um, yeah, I think we have quite a unique model now uh, in in Sweden in terms of how we set it up. And it's it's mostly thanks to actually being connected to the Stockholm School of Economics. Okay, that's cool. All right. So um, you as a venture capital firm, uh, when you look at companies to invest... Mm-hmm. So what is a VC case? Like how, what parameters do a VC case have? What, what, yeah. Tell me all about it. <laughs> Spill the tea, please. Yes. So, I mean, when we look at cases, it's so super duper early. Um, so it's really hard to tell when we admit companies to our incubator uh, and when we actually do the investing. But um, I think you can tell quite fast and how the company works and how they behave if they are a VC case or not. I had the immense honor to sit um, across from the Void team when they started out in their first four months and just seeing how they were solving problems so incredibly fast and just seeing them like find solutions to anything and and everything and like there wasn't like the same problem that they had last week, they didn't have the next week because they just made it work. And that kind of speed, I think, is very... Um, like when, when we talk about speed with, with our companies, some are like, yes, of course, but we run fast. But I think people don't understand what running fast really means. It It's like... Um, it's this uh, run fast and uh, break things kind of mantra, but actually just solving problems really quickly and if you can't solve it move on and and go somewhere else and um i think it's also like 
when we talk about um, a VC case, it's also growth at all costs, sort of. And and not every founder wants to do that kind of journey. And it's so it's both about what what can you do as a team and what do you want to do as a team. And then, like, on top of that, what can this business actually be? And then you have to look at the market size and the potential to grow and um, and the VC industry or the VC capital. It's a super, super niche type of funding. So you have to really understand how VCs work to be able to also understand if you have a VC case or you're building a company that is suitable for that type of funding. Yeah. So that's why I'm so lucky and happy that you're here. <laughs> you can tell us all about that. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, like, if you if you're building a company and you think that you want funding from venture capital firms, you should understand sort of how how venture capital firms think. So, in Sweden, at least, um, usually you talk about um, like funding at a pre-seed, a seed, Series A, and so on, um, and then. All of these instances is like 18 to 24 months apart. So as soon as you, I would say, not not even as you get an investment to start with, but as soon as you start talking to investors, that's when the clock starts ticking. And, and then you have, as soon as you get to that point where you want that capital, you're going to have to really make sure that you prove yourself in between each of these rounds. And... Um, it's not just just proving yourself and and then raising more money and and raising more money, but it's also being able to make an exit within that number of years that the VCs think. So usually a VC spends like maybe one year max to raise a fund, and then they have like two three years where they deploy the capital, so they invest the money that they raised. Then they have around seven years. Uh, that they want to see, they want to work with the companies and maybe do some follow-on investments and uh, basically see that from the point that we invested and seven years on, we want you to have made X amount of money for us to be able to return three to five times the fund to our investors in the fund, our LPs, so so to speak. Um, And this... Um, you can think like, oh, but that's nice, but I'm probably going to build a, a great company and it's probably going to grow really fast. But uh, I would I would encourage you then to sort of calculate. So if they want to see, so so when we when we talk about VC returns, we think that uh, VCs it, typically they raise like in the first fund maybe 300 to 800 million sec. With that money, they're going to make 24 investments. Of those 24 investments, they are going to do follow-on investments in 14 of those. So almost half of you are not going to get any other funding from these VC. Uh, And then only seven of those 14 get another additional follow-on investment. So VCs, they narrow down the, the, the companies that they believe in quite fast. And so imagine that you are one of these seven, and then they're going to hold the, their shares in your company for another maybe five years, depending on when you did each round. And then during, and during those five years, they're going to think that probably one or maximum two of you are going to succeed. And for you to be able to pay back the three to five X return on this fund, you have to, your company has to be valued maybe 
50, 55 times the amount it was valued when they invested for them to make sure that they give the returns to their investors. That makes sense. And and just one question here, or just one clarification. It's not profit. It's not profit. It's just a valuation. Valuation. Company. Yeah. yeah. So you have to increase your valuation. Yeah. How do I cre- increase my valuation? It's basically to have all these achievements in in the process and and understanding what you need to show at the next round and deliver that. So um, in in the in the early round earlier rounds, it's more easy to say. So like at a pre-seed level, uh, we believe that you should have shown some kind of traction. You should you should have shown that doesn't have to be revenue, but show that in like customers are either liking what they are seeing or they're enjoying your product or they they actually think that this this product solves a problem of theirs and that there is a potential to grow and there's a potential of a, of a bigger market. Uh, then at, at seed, you should probably show that your customers are loving your product and they're they're sticking. So your retention is good, i.e. your com- customers are staying around in your product because they love it so much. And here maybe you have tried to start charging for the product and you see that there is potential to do that as well. At Series A, you want to have like an uh, ARR, so basically the the amount of money, the revenue that you have recurringly per year, you want that to be around 1 million USD or euro. Um, and so then like that's the next step of showing that your customers don't just love what you do, they don't just stick around, but they also stick around paying and they pay for it to an extent where I have shown that what we in the market call product market fit. So basically that what the product we have is giving the market and that's a match. And then at the higher levels, it's uh, it's more dependent on different types of numbers, and um, you should show that it's not um, like it's uh, it's not that expensive to buy new customers compared to what you make out of them, and so on. And and we talk a lot about CAC and LTV and all of these different um, terms uh, that we use in the industry. But uh, and then sort of companies also diverge a bit in in what you want to see in them. So B2B and B2C is quite different. It's also very different if you sell to governments or uh, other type of customers where you have long sales cycles and so on. Yeah, and that makes it so much more clear when you explain it in this way. Because we have all heard like, oh, you have to find the market product fit. We uh, mostly invest in the team and things like that. So I think that what you explained, like, what uh, VCs expect at every, at every round and how you then plan for your next round and what achievements or target goals you set up. I think that was really clear when, when you explain it. Yeah, and different VCs have different ways of thinking of this, of course. So this is how we look at it and how uh, like the, the VCs that I talk to who invest very early, they look at it like this. Maybe VCs who invest later on, they, they don't see it this way, but um, I think what's... What's important is that we require all these steps and that's how we sort of gauge basically where you are in your journey of, of driving your company. But to to create that, you need the good team, you need the the market potential, you need all these things that VCs say that they look at with you. And at a pre-seed level, you have no idea if these if this is an idea that will reach one million ARR. But 
that's why you look at the team. Do we think that the team can manage to reach this, uh, to take this company to Series A? And so that's sort of how we, what we look at and how we, how we guess. And it's really a guessing game. Mm. And it's really interesting what you say as well. Like when you raise money, you get a certain amount until the next round. And that's like 12 to 18 months. So you are supposed to spend the money and like build fast and grow. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I would say 18 to 24 months, mm. especially in this climate. It's good to have a runway that is longer than you think. And always keep in mind that it takes six months to race around. So uh, if you want to show that the money that you raised in the pre-seed round, um, sort of that's the money that you need to go to the seed round, you have to think that if, you, if you're racing for a 24-month runway, then you have 18 months to prove yourself because then you have to show that proof in the last six months when you race. Mm. So... It's it's always much shorter than you think, and it always takes much longer to raise capital than you think. Yeah, yeah, and and it's time consuming as well because it's all about relationships. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's why I also said in the beginning that the the clock really starts ticking when you meet investors for the first time because it's a relationship game. They want to get to know you, and they want to see if you can deliver on what you said that you were say, uh, thinking that you should deliver on. So. If you meet an investor six months before you start fundraising and then you say like in six months we'll have this and this and this, don't ever think that VCs forget what you said. They, all VCs have a CRM system where they put in what you said that you will do. And if you come back, they will look in their CRM and they will say like, oh, this person said that they will have this much and this much and this much and maybe you haven't achieved that or you're even not even close to that. They, they will not get a great impression of you and your ability to deliver on what you promise which will make it much harder for you to raise so uh, i i usually say that you shouldn't start taking uh taking meetings with investors until you know sort of what your plan is but then start as early as possible to know what your plan is because you you will need to have time to build relationships because most there, there are very few investors, especially angels, but uh, not that much with the VCs, but uh, angels want to have known you for a while to make sure that they understand who you are and what you can deliver on. Mm. Yeah, such a good advice. And I mean, that's hard like to know, right? Where yeah. to take that meeting, like because you want to network and get to know people because it's sometimes i mean it takes time as well to to find the right investor for you especially yeah. angel angel investor or NDVC as well like to find the right fit so you need to date <laughs> yeah date with, with angels i think that it's much easier to date and they they don't have crms so hopefully they don't remember what you said if you were promised something but with vcs i think like a great way to start building relationships is is to meet them and ask them questions. So like, what are you looking for in the company that you invest in? What do you want to see? Maybe between pre-seed and seed happen. Um, what, like, how long does it take for you to make a decision? What, what do you, are you interested in? In what do you see as challenges in my business? Uh, what do you see as opportunities? Like, making sure that you understand how they think. And then you don't have to promise so much in the first meeting. You just have to be like, oh, okay, then it's great. Then I know you and maybe I introduce myself a bit and we know each other and we get a sense of if we get along because getting along is like 
that's the really really tough part in in this industry because it's so much about how how good we get along because this VC is probably going to be on your board for the next five years and they're going to be in your company for the next 10 to 15 years and so you want them you want to have a good relationship with them it's not just them who wants a good relationship with you uh, but it's you who want them to be a nice person right so making sure that you like each other and that you're comfortable spending a lot of time with each other and that should be in your interest as well to try to understand yeah definitely it's a long long term relationship when you so and tell me when i get that investment what is like what is required like what what do vcs want from me as a founder Uh, when I get the investment, what do they expect in terms of reporting and and other commitments? I think it really depends on what type of investor it is. So something I would ask an investor is, what do you, um, what what is your, um, what what is the perk of of choosing you as an investor? What can you provide me as a startup uh, after you invest? And also what do you require? So we, for example, uh, believe that Uh, founder friendliness is like the best thing ever and uh, we obviously think that because we've been working with so many startups at a very early stage and and uh, we say that we don't we don't require you to report anything to us except for like your yearly your annual report uh, we don't require board seat we don't require you to update us on anything uh, we just we believe in you and we we want you to run fast and then we leave you to that Um, but in turn, we also don't support that much because we don't have time to do that because we invest in 15 to 20 companies per year. So um, while if you look at other VCs that have, has this mandate of investing in 24 companies over two to three years, obviously they're, they're have most of them have room to have one person being in charge of maybe five to ten uh, or well five to six, seven companies per person. Then they will usually take a board seat because... It allows them to have a, a say in what happens in the company, but also to be updated on what happens in a very, very important position in, in the company. Uh, and they usually also require you to report back because they have uh, LPs or investors in the fund that ask them for reports. Um, and some funds like Norwegian, for example, they uh, are um, they have requirements on their sustainability. Um, and then they would require you to report much more on uh, your sustainability efforts as well. So it it really depends on on what kind of invest- investor you um, you hire basically, or you get into company. Mm. Which one you choose? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And. What do you see? I mean, in your daily work, you see a lot of, uh, you meet a lot of founders, you see a lot of companies and a lot of pitching. So can you give us some, or can you give me some good examples and some not so good examples? What are like the, 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 like, what do investors love to see founders do? And what are the red flags? I mean, if I were a founder, I would think like, okay, If the VCs, they are my customer here and they want to buy, right? We, I want them to buy. And, and it's not my product, it's the, com- the, the shares in my company, basically. So what I would, I would try to understand, like, what are they interested in? 
what makes them willing to pay, what makes them um, willing to stay on for a long time, and uh, what are they interested in seeing for them to also continue investing in my company. And um, I think that that's, if you phrase it like that, you, you, um, you understand that you have to look and learn so much about your customers, i.e. your investors, before you even go out talking to them. Like, you would never start talking to a target group without understanding them if you would sell your product to them, right? So it's so much about understanding how investors think and what they look for and that you can do through talking to investors like at a, uh, for a coffee or meeting VCs for a catch-up call or um, whatever. But um, it, and it's so it really depends on, on who you're talking to. So if you have that mindset, I would sort of think, okay, so VCs, what they're driving for is returning money to their LPs, their investors in the fund, right? Okay, so they want to see that with you, I can make 50 to 55 times the money. Show them that. So how do you get there? And, and sort of what's the trajectory for you? And how are you going to do it within the seven years? So then we, we usually, like, that idea has, has translated into like having the hockey stick slide and having the market size and and showing that in different ways. But it's important to always have that in the back of, of my mind. So I'm selling to them an opportunity to make an exit in seven years with 55 t- times their money. And how do I get there and start going backwards from that? What do I need to have achieved? And then understanding and and guessing a bit so then i probably need to be in five markets and then during seven years how do i launch in five markets well maybe i need to start year two to launch in my in my first mother uh, market outside of of sweden for example and and sort of make that um make that journey and and not like not guess in terms of like oh the market is this size and if we only had 1% of that market, we would be a unicorn because that's that's too much of a guessing game. Don't ever do that. <laughs> uh, but instead look at what is the potential that I could make, uh, maybe from a bottoms-up approach instead. So I charge this much per, per customer. I think that I'm going to sell this much every week from now on, and it's going to grow by this much. Then in five years, how much is that? And... Um, and, and and like investors are people looking at a case, like a business case. So talk to them about that. And in the very early stages, so much is about the team's ability to li- deliver on what you promise. So show them that. Show them that you can deliver on what you say that you are supposed to deliver on. And, and uh, maybe sometimes that's by explaining the experience of the founders and what they've done previously. But sometimes that's just proving them that when you meet them next month, you have done 10 times more than what you promised that you would do. And and showing that you have speed and showing that you have the potential of actually increasing by 55 times the, the valuation that they invested. Okay. So really showing the business opportunity here and, and the growth and how they can make, like how you can grow to, to return their investment. Yeah. Because I guess that's like, in a sense, that's what VCs work for, because they also get a percentage of the uh, exits that they make. 
compared to their LPs. So mm. it's um, they're all they're all working to make sure that they end up delivering the best returns to their investors. Because if they don't, they can't raise another fund because they raise funds after each other. And if they start showing that they can't return the funds to, uh, or the they can, can't make a good return to their LPs, their LPs are not going to put in more money into new funds. And so they will be out of a job. So it's, it's really, for them, the business case is returning money to their investors. Mm-hmm. And and what are some of the like red flags that you see, or some things that founders just like yeah, get in and like uh, throw around, uh, and you're like, oh yeah, right. Um, I think that um, like a red flag for me is definitely the ability to not take be able to take feedback, uh, and I think I'm. It comes from me having worked in an, worked in an incubator for five years and and coaching companies and uh, it's not a matter of like listening to what everyone says and just changing your business based on that but being curious and open to what other people are saying because obviously like none of us knows 100% what's best for our company and and it's not because we're not good at what we do it's because there are so many inputs that we can't be able to manage in our brain or have the have had the possibility to learn from somewhere so like the ability to learn the ability to listen to to others and and take that feedback and and try test it or um the ability to also get feedback from many and and decide what is worth trying and what is not worth trying here based on the feedback that i get um and then i think most of everything else is is manageable because you can sit together with someone who's really good at at supporting and, and coaching startups and you can learn quite a lot. Um, but then, I mean, in general, it's it's always good to see that the market is the market potential is really, really big, um, that you have the possibility to build a, a huge company. And um, I mean, the red flag that I mentioned of saying that, like, we can get one percent of this market, that would be great. Um, and then there are like a thousand small things like that, but I wouldn't stress so much on that. Just showing that you can build a huge company and how you will get there. That's like the the gist of it all. And um, to help you with that, you should you should ask um, investors what they see as the the biggest risks with your company, and and just make sure that you have ways to de-risk that. So like in the Sequoias. Um, Pitch deck. So Sequoia is like one of the biggest VCs in in the world, most known uh, from being one of the the great ones from Silicon Valley. They have a pitch deck where they show like this is what we want to see, and basically in everything they have like, what is the market? How do you de-risk the risks in the market? How do you de-risk competition? How do you de-risk everything? And and uh, in other terms, we talk about like. How do you de-risk competition, like other players coming in and doing exactly what you do? Well, then we talk about moats. So like, how can you create something that is very specific for your company that doesn't allow other players to create what you do as as good as you do it? And uh, and just simplifying it very much with saying like, okay, so I talk to an investor and they say, the risk with my company is that like Google could do this. Okay, then show in your slides 
why Google can't do this. Um, and all of these, like all of these factors that are risky with your business, if you try to de-risk all of those, like you're going to build a great company, not because you have the, like the grandest visions, but because with the grandest visions, you're also going to succeed in your how, because you've thought about it. Um, so like a, a red flag is not thinking it through really and having this perspective of who's my customer and how do they think when it comes to the speaking with the investor. Yeah, because there are always going to be competition. Yeah. Yeah, in the market, but you just have to think about how you are special or how, what you do differently that is not easy to copy for or from to others. Yeah, yeah. For us. yeah. When we interview for the incubator, we have this question that we ask every single company and it's, um, if this is such an amazing idea, why has nobody done this before? Uh, and it's sort of, it's sort of coming from a perspective where we're like, okay, we're here in Sweden, like it's a super small country and we're sitting here and you have this great idea. Like probably you're not the first one to come up with this idea. And, and if you are like, I mean, amazing, but you're probably not. So if you, uh, if someone else has already thought about this, what is it in the way that you do it that makes sure that you will succeed when nobody else has? Or I would say that uh, it's a way for you to also understand that probably someone is already on their way of doing it. And you, may, if you haven't uh, found them when you Googled, it's probably not because they don't exist. It's because you didn't find them. Um, and sort of having that mindset of, okay, if... I'm not the best, like I'm not the greatest person in the world. So probably someone already thought about this. Either if they tried it, what did they do wrong or what can I do that makes sure that I succeed when the others don't. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good perspective to have. Yeah. And also, yeah, um, like your idea is not unique. Like there are probably ideas like that that has been tried or someone is yeah. working on a similar idea somewhere in the world. Which is fine because you don't have to be like, the only person working with an idea and probably you're never going to be that but it's about how you will be able to compete in the market that you're in better than the others right mm. so always 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 de-risking the risks that come with your business mm. which i think is like it's more i think it's more um like we we as women think more like that which mm. i think is why we why we make great founders mm. because we we think about the consequences and the risks much more and we try to mitigate those and it's uh, and people say that like men are more risk uh, like um, or less risk averse they want to take more risk and i think maybe that's true if you look at that women take more calculated risks yeah and i think uh, like VCs want to invest not in like crazy risky stuff that has n that are n not risk mitigated at all. They want to invest in risk mitigated stuff because even though it's called risk capital in Swedish, it's really not that risky to be honest. No, no, exactly. Hmm. But you mentioned also like women thinking about risks more. Um, do you see any difference in? pitching or kind of business ideas or 
approach or like a team setup or 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 things like that in men versus women i think that when i meet um a women who are founders they um they talk more about um the why and and the how and and the sort of background behind it and it's usually driven by a great passion which i think is great uh, while i sometimes i meet like I, I have this great case that I, I remember us talking so much about that was just after Estrid launched uh, the Razor brand. Ah, yes. Um, we had like two management consultancy guys coming up with the exact same idea. And uh, when we were speaking with them, uh, you could really tell that like this was not a passion of theirs. Like they saw a business case where they could make a ton of money. And they made a slide deck that really, really showed that. And it's, I think, if you want to work with a company for the next 15 to, or 10 to 15 years at least, you should really do something that you're passionate about and that you feel very strongly about. So I think that's that's really what, what I like with the female founders. What, what I then, on the other hand, see is that they don't build up as like big of a case that the men do they usually have they usually see their companies being lower valued than the men think that their cases are at the same point in time they uh, to some extent have maybe more reasonable numbers in their calculations not just um like exaggerating um to make sure that they get this vc case uh, journey in their numbers and um, I think there's like one side of it that is, okay, women, including myself, need to think bigger and think like sometimes exaggerate our numbers because it's probably going to go much better than we think um, because we're like, let's be reasonable. Um, but then there's another side of like, okay, but maybe you don't want to build a VC case that that growth grows this fast and that's okay. But then you shouldn't exaggerate your numbers to make sure that a VC comes on and invests. You should find other sources of capital. Okay. Yeah, and that's a really important point. Like there are different ways of building a business. It, it, VC route is not the only one. There are, yeah, Vinova or Almi or other types of funding uh, that, that you can go for instead. And bootstrapping is yeah. a great idea. Like if you can uh, earn money from your idea in an early stage, that's uh, super good. Yeah. And we have so many um, like companies popping up now doing um, venture debt or like growth debt, which basically is just um, loans that they give either like between rounds or um, to companies that maybe don't want to uh, raise more equity rounds so like external capital coming in and buying shares. So it's um, there are many different ways and many different routes you can take. And uh, some angels are more interested in, in less, less risky uh, investments. So maybe they don't want to make a 100x on their investment, but they want to make a 10x. But if they're 10, like it's, it's 90% sure that it will be a 10x. And it's about finding the right people and the right investors for your business which 
it's like I mean, honestly, not super easy in this industry because the we still have a very underdeveloped uh, venture market and and financing market here in Sweden. But um, it's a, I think it's a matter of like understanding your plan and understanding what you want and and running on that. And um, if you try to raise uh, venture capital uh, from VCs and and you're not successful, like step back, not think how can I tweak my case to make this a VC case, but rather what type of capital does my business need and think of it from another perspective. Yeah, that's so important. So you don't end up building a totally different thing in the end just to please or just to fit into a VC case. Yeah, because VCs, they will sit across from you and they will say, why did you tweak this? Because they don't want you to tweak it because they understand that if you tweak your business to suit the capital needs, you're not going to build a great business. You're going to build a business that you think fits into some uh, template that maybe is not even correct. Hmm. Yeah, that's so true. But what you mentioned before, um, the percentage that the or the steps that the VCs invest in. So what do I do as a founder? I mean, if I get all the investments with the same VC and like more comes on board, that's, that's great, right? Mm. I don't have any problems. <laughs> but if I don't, like what do you do then? Do you go to another VC and kind of explain why the first VC didn't invest or do you, are you doomed? <laughs> <laughs> I think so like the general idea uh, in the market is that if you're if your investors from the first round don't want to invest in your second round, that says a lot about your company um, because they have insights because they probably sit on your board or they get the reporting that you send them and they don't believe that it's worth for them to put more money into your company that's a huge red signal like a red flag a bad signal for other investors and you you would be surprised how much vcs speak with each other about you so it's i think it's super important to make sure that your vcs are willing to make that second investment and as I mentioned, it's only 14 out of those 24 that gets the second investment. So it's like they filter out a lot of companies along the way. And that's just between the 18 to 24 first months. And then 18 to 24 months later, it's another seven that, that disappears. So I, would, I wouldn't say that you're doomed, but I would say that you should probably look for other types of funding rather than VC funding if your first VC doesn't want to continue investing in you. Because it's it somehow should be a sign for you as well that if they don't think that you can grow to the extent that they um, that they think or that they need for you to be a, a good VC case um, and they already invested in you they already have money in your company and they still don't think that you're gonna make it that's basically them through like writing down their entire investment in you and saying um we're done and uh, we're breaking up we're breaking up but it's like they don't say that they are and they're like yeah but c- keep on going well we believe in you but they don't believe in you because you should they put their money where their mouth is they didn't put money in you so I think that it's uh, it's definitely up an opportunity to think think again and and rethink your your funding uh, plan and your your financing. Um, 
And from there were a lot of companies that this happened to in the past year, right? And and not only because the, the VCs didn't want to continue investing, but maybe they invested at a super high valuation and then uh, the valuations were very low and the VCs didn't have money to put into the companies or the angels didn't have money to put into the bridge rounds and so on. So um, it's... Uh, it's uh, it's shifting the market a bit to focus more on revenue and not bootstrapping in a sense, but making sure that you can be profitable and then use external capital to grow even more. And that I think is a strategy that everyone should have in their back, the back of the, their minds right, right now, because it's really another type of financing market as well uh, in general. Yeah. And uh, um, I'm glad that you are mentioning the current situation. Can can you tell us more about that? Because it it, it is a tough such situation right now. It's like post pandemic. It's an economic crisis. It's war going on in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, and it's a tough. Like the tech industry has really gone through a tough tough period. So, what do you see from your perspective? Like what's happening? And and um, yeah, how can founders survive? So I think that. In general, I I've always tried to tell startups to uh, make sure that they get revenue as soon as possible in their startups, and I think that that's even more true right now. Uh, it's it's really not possible anymore to build a company that has like an idea to make money sometime in the future, like we've seen with the previous tech companies making these kind of incredible journeys. Um, now we see that investors are looking for even more safe bets like they are taking even less risk which is so incredibly stupid because uh, their the valuations are even lower so they are actually they are getting paid for taking less risk but anyway let's not talk about that um so what you should do is try to refocus on how can i make money um and how can i make money faster and a lot of that is making sure that users love your product and and usually in our coaching with our companies it usually goes back to understanding your customers so what is the customer problem and and how do we really make sure that they love our way of solving that for them and that maybe means right now that you have like three types of customers that love your product differently and maybe um maybe it's not about building features for all of these three types of customers but it's building features for one of these types of customers and then like making sure that they really really can't be without your product and just focusing on that even though that means that like two-thirds of your customer group will disappear um and seeing how you can find a more niche target group that also is big of course like you have to have market potential but so that you don't try to build a product for everyone but rather build a product for the ones who are willing to pay for you solving their problem basically mm. Mm. and that's really good uh, advice i think to get even closer to your customers and really understand their needs um, yeah. and even, i mean even more yeah if you have below 150 to 100 com- uh, customers i would say call them all mm. and uh, and ask them yeah what do you love about our product what what would uh, what would you be willing to pay for it what uh, what is it that would make you even more willing to pay for it what do you see 
you using this for like understanding them and understanding how they think about your product and then like maybe from those calls you can get a lot of learnings and and like that's the difference between a VC case and and not VC case it's them coming back next month saying like oh yeah we still have problems with understanding our customer group and we say like did you make the calls oh we called 10 and five replied or five answered then like I would just write that company off <laughs> because it doesn't show that they are willing to work for the like the cur- they don't have the curiosity to learn and to develop and to run fast um they're focusing on something else and what's most important right now is focusing on your customers and making sure that you sell yeah because it's so easy to be caught up with everything else like mm. your internal structure your fundraising <laughs> yeah <laughs> like uh, yeah but your customers are i mean you're the foundation of your business and then the key success factor if your customers love the product or not and they're willing to pay for it in the end yeah i think that as founders we should only focus on selling and maybe fundraising and then everything else can be delegated to the other people in our team mm. or like please have someone else do your bookkeeping and like please someone have someone else do other things for you that you shouldn't do in your company mm. you should only grow 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 either through financing or uh, through customer revenue and uh, that should be your sole focus for all the founders in, in my opinion mm. Yeah, that's a really good input. But I know that you are very um, outspoken uh, about female entrepreneurship and female founders as well. So how what do you do to support female founders on their journey? So I think uh, something that I and a lot of investors talk about is always trying to support female founders, like regardless of where they are at their venture building and um, in art case it it's a lot about taking meetings with all the female founders that uh, get in touch that might be relevant for us um and i think uh, doing that and giving feedback and and giving uh, our experiences and and thoughts on on their cases help a lot um sometimes i also think it's just like about being an ally and um i spoke with um a company and a founder a female founder in the end of last year and and it was we just spoke about like being a woman in this industry and and what what we can do and how we can support each other and and we didn't talk about like us investing or um like anything that was a business uh, call really uh, but it was only about like how we can build big um, build better relationships with each other and i think that I'm gonna do business with her in the future because of that and not because we spoke about business but because we spoke about being supportive of each other um, because that's what the men do right they build these huge networks of just making making favors for each other and and we don't do that really as women and I think there are tons of uh, reasons for that but I think that the at least the investor community has really stepped up uh, for, at least from the VC side Um, and then I see a lot of angels that support as well, and I think um, I think we need more women to found businesses. And uh, you can ask any VCs; they want to invest in more female founders. So it's just about uh, if it's a 
if, if it's a VC case that you're building, getting to that point where you can pitch to investors and, and make sure that they invest. Mm. And that's so important. Yeah, to building build those re- relationships with both men and women, like other founders in, in the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And making sure that women have access to the same resources that men do. And uh, for us at the incubator for the past five years, it's been super important for us to do that. And we've seen, we've also seen results out of that. And it, it's so, it's so interesting when like last year or in 2021, we, I think our companies raised like 35 million sec in total and uh, 73% of the companies that raised had a women woman that was CEO and 74% of the capital went to the companies with a women woman who was CEO. And we were sort of saying like, if this is not proof that when you give equal access to resources, then women raise as much capital as they are in the amounts, um, then I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good case. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I think we are getting to the end uh, of this um, talk. Uh, I o- always ask in the end so about your best advice. So what would be your best advice uh, to founders uh, looking for VC capital? Um, I would say that you should try to understand if your business is really a VC case and uh, to do that, be curious in the conversations that you have with investors. Stop promising them things and maybe start asking them questions about what they look for and what they want to see and, and what they think, actually, honestly, about your company. And then uh, count backwards. Uh, see if, can you deliver 55 times the valuation return uh, in seven years? And if you can, how will you do that? And then pitch that to investors. Mm, great. And do you have other tech hustlers that I should interview? Um, yes, of course. There are tons. Um, you should definitely talk to Rebecca Rido at The Inventure. She's great and especially in supporting other women. And uh, I think that you also should talk to Indra Sharma at uh, Peak. Uh, she's also super inspiring in the way that she's both changing the VC landscape with her uh, thoughts and um, processes that are being implemented at Peak, for example, but uh, also for the entire industry. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'll definitely reach out to both of those. Good. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was my pleasure. What did you think about today's episode? Let me know on LinkedIn and Instagram at Tech Hustler. This podcast is a passion project of mine. So if it speaks to you, it would mean a lot to me if you would give it a nice review and share it with your friends. See you next week. And until then, hustle smarter, not harder.